to another episode of Relative Pitch. I'm Anthony Morris, joined by my co-host Lauren Green and Michael Brown. So y'all, how has y'all's week been this week? It's been a crazy week. How's it been for y'all? Well, I busted my lip pretty bad on Monday. So I've been having to take time off the horn, uh, which I hate, and starting to play the trumpet again the past couple of days, which has been awful. It's not like a middle schooler, which is leading to some future projects. But I also found this album, vinyl, that I'm going to send to Anthony. It's his favorite vinyl ever. It's all the Sousa marches played by the Marine Band and the Royal Navy Band. <laughs> <laughs> and deliver it to him when I go home this summer. You're wrong for that. You're wrong for that. If you we know, know Anthony that. loved those marches. He loves those marches. On the country, actually. Marches are not my favorite thing. Like, I would listen to anything else besides a march. I think they're so bland. Um, I think they all sound very similar. In uh, just that March style, like, it's not me. I'm sorry. If, it, oh. if you want to disagree, we can disagree. That's, that's just it. <laughs> <laughs> but, isn't, this, isn't this a marching band thing or like Morris, <laughs> isn't this something um but no I mean my week besides just a lot of prod it's that point of the semester and like just the year in general where I feel like teachers educators everyone were just kind of it's a lot at one time I think and it doesn't help when we have a mass shooting every other week in the country Okay, um, I'm over it. It's, it's getting to the point where, I mean, I am shocked every time it happens, but it, I feel like we're getting so used to it, which is not something that you want to be used to, is a mass shooting happening every other weekend. It's crazy. It's like, I saw a post that someone was like, the universe said, y'all can go out a little bit since COVID's lifting up and y'all choose to go do mass shootings. Like, ha- it, it's just like when you get recess and then you someone immediately ruins it like just for, like throwing a rock or something like, and this is nothing. I mean, the Boulder, Colorado shooting, first of all, prayers to the family and the people in those, the, the lives who lost any of the victims. That was such an, an unfortunate incident. It was disgusting. It was evil, sickening. Um, I think it was 10 people, including a few workers. I think there was a, um, a police officer also in the mix. It's just so unfortunate. And I, you know, it's just crazy the the fact that these things are just constantly happening and then it's like hey well maybe we should do something on gun control then it's all like oh well it's not the guns it's the people and it's like okay but then the people are the ones with the guns so you you have to understand that like listen I'm not against like my all my family the men in my family had guns growing up they never scared me because I knew they weren't going to shoot me okay but it's becoming a problem when certain people if we want to say the people who are doing these things have mental illnesses and other things that happen, we should probably screen better the people who are getting access to these weapons if we wanna use that motive. And like, I mean, what did you guys think? Like, I know we, Anthony has people who's out in uh, Boulder. Yeah, um, so I have some friends out in Boulder um, that go to the University of Colorado at Boulder um, and just making sure that they were okay. Like, it was very weird. Um, so, you know, when something happens like that, Facebook has the automatic thing where it says, mark if you're safe. Yep. Um, and one of my friends, uh, he marked that he was safe. And then I have another friend who, uh, Melinda Mason, she went to KSU. Um, 
she said like that that grocery store is a grocery store that I frequent at that's where I you know get my groceries and stuff like that so knowing that even though it was you know on that side of the country and I live here in Florida on the east coast to know that that it was just that close to somebody that I personally know and personally uh cherish it is it is just very upsetting um but like you said Lauren it has become now that news like this oh we hear the week and then next week is something new and it's become like that I mean I will always go back to at the beginning of the year, the Nashville bombing. We mm-hmm. heard about it barely for a day. And then do we know, is Nashville back? Like what's going on? What What is, uh, you know, being done to prevent any of this from happening? Also, uh, when y'all hear this two weeks ago with the um, shooting in Atlanta, like we have just been, I guess this generation has now just been so immune to all of this going on. And it, it's very disgusting because first of all, this is not the norm. This is not what we want it to be. Um, and it's just disgusting. It's disgusting. We need reform. And for the people who are like, they're taking our guns, well, maybe the people who are saying that you need to get them taken away because you obviously have been uh, caring about your lives very unresponsibly. And I, like, I'm just sick of it. I'm, I'm sick of hearing stuff like this every single week. Yeah, <clears throat> little facts. Since 2000, there has been school shootings in 43 out of the 50 states. Yeah, that's a whole nother topic, school shootings, you know? And that whole, I remember, I remember whenever, I forgot which one happened, which is sad that I'm like, which one was it? Um, and there was a possibility y'all had an active shooter at the school you are currently at, Michael, right? And I remember that shaking you yeah. like a lot. And it's so real that these kids are now aware that at any point someone can just walk in and choose violence, you um, know? I would never forget, I think I was 10 or 11. Um, and this is when the like, it might not be the biggest shooting, but it was the biggest shooting to me because I was at the age to realize, but it was the shooting at Virginia Tech. And I remember watching on CNN where um, one of the girls who actually lived, she was like, we were all scared. And I had to lay down with dead bodies yep. so that I would not die. So I had to pretend as I was dead. And I remember at 10, 11, watching this and just being like, is this something I'm gonna have to go through? Like it, it just shootings and especially at public places like grocery stores. Why are you uh, um, really here in a place where I'm just here to get groceries? Why why are you coming and bothering everybody with this? Like why? And to kill all of those people, that is, it is just sad. It's, it's just sad. like evil. Very evil. Very very evil. And also. I will have to bring it to you. And if you have a problem with what I'm about to say, then that's on you. I'm not here to argue with you. So the person, um, to my knowledge, was taken, you know, uh, very loosely, you know, uh, not uh, treated as if he just killed 10 people or he just shot up a whole um, grocery store. He got treated way nicely than any of the on our black and people of color that have been shot, gunned down and killed. 
that was a huge thing that came from that. Um, the fact that someone you can get pulled, like an African-American, can get pulled over, you know, for a general traffic stop and with no weapon in the car, and end up murdered. And then someone who literally went in and shot up an entire grocery store is somehow still alive. Now, I'm not saying that they deserve to die, but when you take someone else's life, you are basically saying you do not understand and like the the value of life. Like you are taking that away from somebody. And yeah, just it if you don't see a problem with how the system is, then you're I there's nothing else at this point anyone can say to you to make you it's just ignorant. It's blatant blatant ignorant ignorance, yes, at this point. Michael, did you have something to say earlier? Um this is just quick research, but one, two, three, four, five, six. There were six mass shootings last year around. And then this year it's been one, two, three, four, five. In 2021? Yes. And mass shootings are characterized by three plus being sh- wounded and shot at one location by one person. And, you know, the, you know, I think we briefly uh, brought back up the incident that happened in Atlanta about, I think it may have been over about two weeks now, um, that specifically took the lives, I think it was eight people, six African American, or six um, Asian Americans, excuse me, um, women who were murdered in this, um, in this incident. And, you know, a lot of people, if you've been seeing, have been posting a lot of things in solidarity, like stop Asian hate. um, And, it's not even just people, it's organizations who are also doing it. So the Chicago Symphony, I have to say shout out to the Chicago Symphony, first of all, because they put up a post in solidarity with the Asian American community, um, just, you know, saying like, we reject the hate and violence of all forms, we stand in support with the Asian, Asian American and Pacific Islander communities, you know, a statement just to show solidarity. And then, of course, I have to go look at the comments, because I know how these things go, Okay. And there was a, a, we'll call her Karen, um, in the comments section who said, and I quote, stick with music if you really care to be musicians. Are you so convinced that there is racism and that it needs to be condemned? Are you willing and able to do without white patrons or donors? Let's just take just a brief amount of time to unpack what this woman just insinuated. First of all, she insinuated that racism wasn't real, okay? That's number one. You don't even have to ask me what uh, race this woman is. Just go ahead and guesstimate. <laughs> Use common knowledge. Um, she she asked, what'd you say? A simple Karen. A simple Karen. Know. That's why that is her name. Um, and so, yeah, so questioning whether racism exists or not. All right. That's a problem. Um, and that it needs to be condemned. So not only is she asking, is racism a thing, but she's asking if it is a thing, do we really have to condemn racism? Okay, and then saying that by showing solidarity with these communities who are being attacked, you are threatening the possibility of um, your white patrons coming to support you. Okay, now she may not be trying to speak for all, and I know that not all the white patrons of the Chicago Symphony believe this, but that's a problem that not only she thinks this, but she said it with her whole chest on this Facebook comment and didn't take it down. She's, she, she is proud of what she said. This is a problem, okay? And, and the- one thing, <clears throat> how many people like that comment? 
only one surprisingly and about 12 people liked the comment that the clap back at her um that basically was saying the cso i'm sure the cso will be fine without you and they i'm sure they don't want patrons of your kind you know in their halls which is true music is for all music and this this whole idea that oh everyone tries to make everything political it is yeah, <laughs> i'll tell you yeah, why yeah. <laughs> um because Let's go back and we had a whole episode on this and we've talked about this before how a lot of times the pieces that we know and love were in response to what was going on politically during the time. So inherently, it is political. It is about human life. It's about life in general politics affect that life. And so if you don't understand why an organization that that preaches humanity, humility, arts, and everything that has to do with just morals and being a human in general, wouldn't want to post something in solidarity with the community they see being targeted um, with hate crimes, I, then you go back under the rock you came from. Because out of there's nothing else anyone could possibly say, I'm not here to educate you. Go look, go figure it out on your own. Honestly, at this point, it's not even that you can't find it. You don't want to. They don't want to understand why it's okay to say stop Asian hate, why it's okay to say Black Lives Matter, Trans Lives Matter, all these things. Like we stand with them in solidarity, pride, all this. It's because it's not focused on them. I'm sick of it. Um, and I also think like, what are you trying to say? What, what you're trying to say is that racism is not a thing. Uh, it should not be condemned. And also you need to make it comfortable for me to come see you. First of all, no, live in your uncomfortable living because this is the world we live in. Number Ooh, two- it. You already know what I'm about to say. Say it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not here, here to make you comfortable. To make you comfortable. Dr. William Lake, we will always say that. That's our motto. <laughs> um, and the thing is like, also when you come and see these performances, last time I checked, the people who are performing for you that you just paid your money and you are paying our checks, we are not all crystal white, ma'am. Aren't. So let me check you at the door. Guess what? If us people of color was not there to perform, you would have an orchestra to come and see. So please go back to where you came from. If you want to listen to this type of music and you want to listen to by yourself, guess what? There's something called iTunes, there's Spotify, there's all this. Guess what? Stop. We we will be fine without you. And actually, yeah. not just you, but your kind of people who think like this, we will be way better without you. So please leave. I would not want you in my audience as a conductor if you feel that way. And I would say that wholeheartedly from my heart and then to yours. I don't want you. Please, the usher will see you out. Bye-bye. White gloves on. Open the right. door. Ma'am, this way. <laughs> this way. Two fingers. This way. And you know, something else, like we're all, again, from Georgia. It seems like Georgia has been a topic of hot discussion since the elections that happened in the in the in November. Um, but now we're we're the hot topic for another unfortunate incident okay so March you know good for Georgia. Go, uh, governor brian kemp or alleged we'll say alleged governor mm. brian kemp um signed sb202 which you know it was a voting bill that basically puts a lot of limitations on voting has to do with mail-in ballots and a lot of things one of the the main thing i want to really highlight from this bill is the fact that now it is illegal to give water 
and whatever other materials to people standing in line to vote. That means these services who come out who they're like, yeah, we want to really support those people who are standing in line for hours and hours because there's voter suppression in Georgia, boom, period. And so these organizations who come out and say, we're going to stand in solidarity with these people, we're going to give them food, we're going to give them water, anything they need to be able to stand there and feel comfortable in order to, you know, use their right to vote, which is every American's privilege. No, that's not a privilege. It's every American's right. Excuse me. It is their right to vote. And it's already a disgusting amount of voter suppression going on in Georgia. And now they're making it harder. They're mad that they lost those senator seats and they're trying to do everything in their power to stay in power. And I mean, did y'all see when that came out? It was all over Twitter, you know? And you know, when, when stuff hits Twitter, it's, it's viral and we're trending, you know? And I mean, it's just, and we know that the communities they were targeting with this bill, right? Mm-hmm. And my, especially minority voter suppression is a huge problem in Georgia. It's a huge problem. And you know why it's minority suppression that they wanna do, right? We know who typically votes one way, who typically votes another way. So it's all just any way they can legally, I'll do this legally, because if I mean, it's really not, <laughs> but any way they legally can affect voting in the matter that again they stay in power they will i just think it's sickening it's getting to the point where it's not even like they're not even trying to be democratic anymore you know it's whatever it takes for them to win so yeah i just um that's all i have to say about it i remember when this stuff started coming out and i just called anthony i was like okay so what is this? Like, what, what's going on? Because I saw it on the social media and stuff. I just don't understand. It just, I, I'm just baffled by how someone was able to pass this and why they would pass it. It's awful. It's the reason we suck. Well, we all know why they <laughs> right. pass it. Um, and as this has been called the modern day Jim Crow, Jim Crow two modern day Jim Crow, right? Um, and that is because you are you have now try you are trying to take rights away from uh, minority people, especially Black people. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is very targeted, and as a result of this, a um, Black representative uh, actually went to the doors of the alleged governor who's, uh, to really represent her constituents and was met with um, uh, police getting arrested for knocking on the door to, to tell the governor, the public needs to know exactly why you were doing this. That is what she was wanting the governor to do. But of course the police was called by, let me just say this. So you mean a little state of Georgia mm, are knocking on the door now she's met with five, six police officers. Where was these police officers in the Capitol? I was just, someone put a comparison photo of oh, yeah. um, the, the representative being like dragged out yes. you know, for knocking on a door, Thank which her dragged out of right. her office. Right. Her that was office her that place she... that she was supposed to be in. Yes. And so, and versus people breaking in to government property during the Capitol riot. And a big government. Okay, state government, government, federal, federal, 
Okay. So you can't, you just can't, there's nothing you can say to justify the difference between what happened that day at the Capitol and how those people were able to walk away and just go home versus this representative being taken away for actually doing what she was trying to do for her constituents. That, yeah, messed up. It's evil. It's so, it's so, you, it's so clear. And if you can't see it, you're blind. I don't have anything else to say. I can't help you. <laughs> like I, at this point I'm over it, but anyway, y'all hopefully better days are coming ahead and um, we'll just see what, what happens after that. So today we want to actually wrap up our Wagnerism book club series. Oh my gosh, I cannot believe y'all we're at the end of this. This is, I know I wanna say thank you to everybody who has been on this journey with us because we know it's been a long one, um, but it is something that, you know, we have been able to pull a lot of discussion topics from. I've learned a lot of things and we'll do a wrap up at the end, just kind of discussing all this, but um, I will start with my portion, which is chapter 14. So chapter 14, the title is Ride of the Valkyries, film from the birth of a nation to apocalypse now. Okay, so that already scares me a little bit because anytime someone brings up birth of a nation, I get a little nervous. <laughs> Um, anytime in history, like in history classes, when we talked about it, it made me nervous. It made me a little queasy. Um, so first of all, just to give a little a summary of the chapter before we go into it, um, the chapter was really about Wagner's role and presence in the film industry, even after his death. So the, the, how his um, artistic theatrix um, that he did during his time really translated over into film and all the nuances and odes to Wagner that were in film, they kind of discussed that very thoroughly. I'm really gonna mainly focus on the birth of a nation and apocalypse now, since so those are the ones that he you know, puts in the title of it. So first of all, um, the beginning of the chapter just starts right with birth of a nation, as you would assume. Um, and so, you know, this is D.W. Griffith's 1950 film, which was called the most amazing motion picture ever made, okay? Um, and the eighth wonder of the world, these are quotes. And we know who was, a, I, there, I know there was a president who showed this at the White House. It was uh, Woodrow Wilson. Well, Woodrow Wilson, thank you. Showed this film at the White House. How does it, how, did, how, how would we see that if that happened in modern day context? That's basically, if you show that film, you're saying, yeah, this is something that should be looked at. This is something that should be viewed. Can we can we just give a, a little bit of a, a backstory of what, in case you don't know Birth of a Nation, mm -hmm. um, it was a movie that came out in 1915. It was looked at as being the, the rising of the KKK yep. um, because it was, I actually think it was a city, was it a city in Georgia? It, it was a Southern city Ooh. that was taken over by African-Americans and the Klan riding on horses yes. come and try to free uh, the white enslaved people from the African-American rule of the city. White enslaved people. Now that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's something right there. Yes. And so okay. that is what it's talking about, the birth of that nation of white supreme white rule. Um, and so that's a little bit of the backstory of that movie. And that is what is seen as the pivotal moment for the resurgence uh, and the true creation of 
modern day the Ku Klux Klan. And I will say as well, I watched a, the movie Black Klansmen that I think that came out before the pandemic, but I watched that recently over my spring break. And it was funny because not funny, but there was just the ritual scene of, you know, they were indu inducting new members of the Klan into um, the organization. And after they went through the ritual, they had to watch Birth of a Nation. Okay. And it was sickening, even though yeah, this is theater and they were doing it for dramatic impact, but the reactions they had to what was happening on screen and it was just it was sick because you knew this is how those people thought during those times okay and it was just it was messed up and so anyway thank you anthony for that background just for anyone who didn't know didn't you know go through u.s history and learn that that's everything that's about so before we get um more into the chapter first of all wagner was used a lot in film himself as a light motif Right. We talked a little bit at the beginning how there were a lot of leitmotifs you could find within Wagner's works, like the sword or the, the Valkyries. Like we knew if we heard something, oh, that meant this, you know, um, and leitmotifs are something that are used throughout a lot of film scoring, you know, through Star Wars. You always know when Leia's about to come on, Sahan's going to come on. You just you can tell by that sound like, ooh, I know what they're insinuating here. Right. And so they it was just thought now that Wagner himself is being used as a leitmotif. Now, depending on what film you watched, it could have been a good thing, it could have been a bad thing, okay? Um, and so one thing I wanna ask, because this is an interesting concept, do you believe Wagner would have been into film scoring if he were alive during like the time that film was becoming a thing? And what movies would you think he would have written for? Like what genres of movies would he have written for? No. No. Oh, that's interesting. Because he didn't like, I don't know. Cause the way he writes music is different from how we write film scores. Cause how John Williams writes it is he uses light motifs. Right. Wagner wrote music and the scholars we added the light motifs. The light motifs. Yes. He wrote the music as he heard it. And we, cause sometimes we like to break stuff down, which is okay. We're like, that means this. But in his head, it was all boom. And so I think he could have done music, but I don't think it would have been as popular as other people. And I feel like just opera was his thing. Yeah. I, I would have to say um, no as well, because I think he would have looked down on film music, to be honest. Yeah. Um, yeah. He just comes off as a person like that. I was just like, mm -mm. and opera music, um would have been like his thing in doing operas but we all know that opera really had a big influence on movies anyway so i feel right. like, he, like just how it happened naturally his music got taken into movies so right yeah no i i have to say i agree with that and i think this idea of um you know the question of whether or not he would have been into film scoring just came from the idea of how amazing the productions he did put on were and people thought that he was way ahead of his time um, in terms of like all the theatrics he would use and you know it wasn't a you know it was something I'm like yeah I can see why you would think that but I think people underestimate how uh, snobby Wagner was and how any other art form or anything modern and modern art form I think he would have saw it as an, as not pure enough or it wasn't just for the music and I think that's yeah that's the whole main thing and Michael said it really well with the whole line motif he didn't think about it that way he was like I wrote the music that's it you know 
Um, and we have to put something, we have to categorize everything into a very specific box these days. And yeah, no, I don't think he would have gone for it either. I absolutely agree. And so the next thing, um, you know, now the idea of using Wagner a lot within uh, these film uh, settings, it's because I think, like uh, someone said, the influence that Wagner had, of course, people are going to use that, the influence of opera onto film scoring. There was a quote that I want to read. It was by an American critic, W. Stephen Bush. He says, every man or woman in charge of the music of a moving picture theater is consciously or unconsciously a disciple or follower of Richard Wagner. So it, it, I'm glad you made that face, Michael. Um, so basically, this guy's saying everybody who does film scoring follows or is a worshiper of, of Wagner. What um, do you think that this is limiting the art form of film scoring? And is is this a monopoly? Do you agree with it? Do you disagree with it? Like, how do you feel about that statement? it's stupid <laughs> i'm i'm sorry like yeah no 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 it's really stupid yeah no i agree with that i think it was a very stupid shallow like one very tunnel visioned uh thing to say i mean because also they're different they're different kinds of composers they're they're just different Absolutely. and one's better the other if we were all the same, it would be very boring. But yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, I, I like. I think that Wagner may influence some film composers, but to say that as a general term that every single um, one is, is by far a worship of a Wagner, I don't think so. And especially nowadays, um, uh, film composers like I just watch. Um, the new movie or the new cut of Justice League just came oh, out. The Zack, the Zack Snyder cut, the yeah. Snyder version and the composers with Hans Zimmer, I think, um, his name is Frank, I can't believe I forgot his name, but like he is way more electronic based and like you could you could tell it and like I, I'm pretty sure he knows who Wagner is and I'm pretty sure he, he of course, I played his music and everything, but to say that, oh, he is a worship of Wagner. I don't think you can say that. I don't think you can right. say that. Yeah, I mean, things influence things that influence things that influence things, right? That's just kind of how the world goes. But to say like, oh yeah, everybody who does this one thing was influenced because of this one person. Like, I, I don't know about that. Or they were, like they said, a disciple or follower of said person. I don't buy it. And this goes back into the whole hero or just putting someone up on a pedestal that is like unreachable. It's like, like um, it's reachable. You don't have to, you know, we, we need to put these people back down to the point where they're like, these, there's still a human. Other humans can come who can influence a mass of people as well. And not everyone is connected to this one person. Yeah, I thought it was absurd. And I, I had to read it because I was like, I, I, I knew that you would think the same thing about it as well. Um, so now going to this uh, apocalypse now um, on page 604 is kind of where I drew this from. And so in apocalypse now, I think this film came out in 1979. I don't think it was, I think it was written in 1969, but it came out, it was released in 1979. 
Um, and they used Ride of the Valkyrie during a helicopter mission, like operation. Um, and in this passage, it talks about how um, um, the American troops force uh, like used a psychological warfare in Vietnam by something called no touch torture, which is like blasting a bunch of loud music to like demoralize and all these things to the enemy. Um, and the script, and I'll read it, there's a snippet of it here on page 604. So one goddess, I was carnage to Willard apparently says, we'll come in low out of the rising sun. We'll put on the music about a mile out, all right? So they're in a helicopters blasting the music, they're going in, right? Willard then says, music? Carnage says, yeah, I use Wagner, scares H out of the slopes. The boys love it, okay? So it talks about, they literally use Wagner's music specifically during this, you know, American, uh, you know, attack the, all the war that's happening in Vietnam and everything. And um, this, something that I did like that they included in here is that this could have been seen as, you know, um, a critique of American hubris or pride, you know, but the visual impact, you know how we like visual effects, you know, like, oh, cool, cool, cool. So it makes anything you put in a certain light look very heroic. You know, and you have to push past all the visual effects and the glorification used to actually see the message behind it. Um, but the visual impact, uh, especially during this time, made it look as if it was something worth achieving, something that was really glorified. They were using the glorification of this. And honestly, the term military fetish object was used as well in that, which is, uh, I know exactly how he was trying, what he meant <laughs> by that. Um, something I wanna ask, is romanticizing war dangerous and do you think America is guilty of this? Oh, definitely. I, and I would say I have fall, I, I'm fall, I have fallen prey for it um, because um, not so much war movies, but like war plot lines like Call of Duty and like Battlefield. Like I'm that. Those are the two games that those two and Grand Theft Auto, those are the three video games you will ever see me play. Um, and I have I, I have fallen prey for the, the, the war themes. Um, and it's weird because my mom, she she is a soldier. She was in um, Desert Storm. And it, it, I think growing up, that's just like something that we have now become accustomed to is things like that. Um, however, I cannot watch a war movie. Mm. Um, I tried saving Private Run, and I was gonna, I'll cut this off right now. Um, I think I watched Zero Dark Thirty, oh, but I yeah. sleep in the middle of that. Um, so like, I cannot watch it, but I definitely can play it. But America is definitely like they love, and they love to put themselves as we are the winner. We're doing this because it's the best thing for everybody, and it's like, no, you don't know that. And so right. definitely America is definitely guilty for that. I love war movies like Saving Private Ryan, Full Metal Jacket, Black Hawk Down, The Hurt Locker, American Sniper, Patton, War. Do I need to continue? Ooh, like, there's so no you many. that American Sniper H? No. Okay. No. I knew. Uh, I love that one. It kind of scared me, but I loved it. it I remember kinda... everybody was like, oh, such a hero. He's a killer. 
<laughs> we don't like to say it, but that's what we're saying. And I'm like, mm-hmm. now if you want to see a really good one, the Patriot. Ah, oh, love also, killer. Also, this beats into the American pride where, oh, this person is a hero because they went in and killed all these people. And then there are some, some war movies where we found out that these people really just had a, a, a king for killing. And they went and killed the opposite, the the, the bad people. You done killed women, children that had nothing to do with it, but now you're looked as a hero. Mm -mm. So that's a whole different subject, but that's none of my business. A really good one, by the way, this really good is active. We're not watching it. It's great. I don't think we're watching it. He speaks for uh, like us and our viewers. Like we're not. No, we're not watching. No, but I mean, check it out. If you're into history, war, and all that stuff, do it, I guess. It's historical. It's just really nice to watch. I'll put my hand out to you. But, um, <laughs> and then wrapping up this chapter, um, just the the last, I want to just read an excerpt from like the last paragraph of it. Um, so I'll start around. Um, in this book, The Ministry of Illusion, this uh, author writes, contemporary American media culture has more than a superficial or vicarious relationship with the Third Reich's society of spectacle. Nothing in film history demonstrates the idea as vividly as Apocalypse Now, where the German will to power gives way to God bless America imperialism. I had to reread and reread and reread that to see exactly what he was saying. And the question I got out of it for you guys is, do you agree with this notion that certain aspects of modern American society reflect the ideals of the Third Reich? And if so, in what ways? I think so. I mean, that imperialistic view, trying to create, especially now, trying to create that unified world, Mm -hmm. a world that all fits that line, I definitely think America definitely takes from that. I mean, why are we in everybody else's country? Like, have you you ever thought about that? Have you ever looked at how many bases we have besides the United States? We're in legit almost every single country. But does any other country have a base in the U.S.? Oh, gosh, they would never allow that. They would never allow like the embassy, I guess. But even that. And even then, they are looked at real scrutinized. Like, absolutely. I mean, what I got from that is the whole nationalism, nationalism thing. All right. Like that's the whole, that's the main thing that keeps coming up with like Wagnerism and oh, I love, I am Germany and all this stuff. And then you get, when you do that, you try to create an ideal, like who is German, who is American. And it's a very specific Mm. image of who they want to say is the right American citizen. I was growing up in good old little middle Georgia. I heard from many of them country boys, I'm American. What does that mean? Also, American, like there's not South America as well. Like, what you trying to say? What is American? Why them country? Is that what you're trying to say? Because I'm sorry. And you, you may, especially if we want to clue all of the Americas, you as one little portion. Do not play games. Do not play games. So please correct yourself. What you mean is I'm white. 
white American, right? If, if we got to say we're African-American, you are white American, okay? That's a very, because you're not an American, Native Americans are the real ones who this area belongs to, okay? I can say a lot about that because I'm in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and there's a lot of that going on, you know, and it's, we, I think we sometimes forget who really this land is native to, you know, everybody else, we're immigrants or we were brought over on a boat, okay? That's the only way we got over here. Anglo-Saxon. Right. I mean, Michael, what did you, I mean, how do you think about that? That was something I saw you go like, <laughs> you had a reaction to. Think about, I, you know, I really, I had a, well, I was, I was researching how many military bases are outside the U.S. That was what I was doing. Cause I was like, oh, how many are there? There's a lot. And we're in 70 countries. Oh yeah. Yeah. So that proves my point. <laughs> we're everywhere yeah i mean i agree with what anthony said and honestly i could see it let me reread the question because because i was so wrapped up in well, this i know so basically it's like do you agree because what this person was saying was that there is a there are similarities between a, he said contemporary like american media and the third like ideas of the third reich you know and, you know, um, it's something that you can see a lot. And people have done this. There have been a lot of comparisons between the past administration and how Hitler gained power. You know, that's all I'm going to say. You can see the similarities and especially the uh, quote unquote proudness. Mm -hmm. Pride, nationalistic pride. Yeah, because I mean, in... There is a there used to be a certain amount of nationalistic pride in every country. That is how a country was able to gain like Holst and Vaughn Williams had a certain nationalistic pride and they created the English sound. They were a part of helping do that. So there's a part of that that's everywhere, but it is there's a sect of it that if it grows and festers too long of becoming toxic nationalistic, like toxic part of like toxic masculinity, that's how it turns bad. And turns like completely in the opposite direction. I think when when nationalism becomes a problem is when and I've, I've said this multiple times through this, and this is the last time I'll say it because we're at the end of this. When you love the love of your country, turns into something where you're like, this is the best place to be. Then you're you're creating a superiority and inferiority. Like you're you're creating that system. Okay. And so it's okay to be like, I am glad I'm blessed to be in this country, yada, yada, yada. I wouldn't want to be everywhere, anywhere else. But when you take it to the next level of thinking, no, this is the best country to be in and everyone else in any other country, they're nothing compared to what, and then it becomes this whole, well, now we're superior. We deserve more. You know, everyone should bow down to our ideals and morals because we are the best country. That's exactly what, how Hitler was like, let me just go ahead and move on up and build an army, build a, just a giant following of people who believed in that, who said, no, you're, you're absolutely right. I do believe this is the best country ever. And because you have those views, I'm gonna follow you. Even if you say, let's go murder some people. That's exactly how that happened. And if you don't see any similarities in blind leadership when it comes to the Third Reich in here, open your eyes, because we saw it. We I, saw that. I mean, just gonna state this, the Germans at that time were the people who just woke up one day and invaded a whole country. 
woke up and that, that that's a whole other meaning of woke up and chose violence <laughs> that is they, they were like i remember i heard this a quote from somewhere on on the world wide web um and it said you know when i'm conducting german music sometimes it gets angry and i just got to say why are you not playing it this angry they literally woke up and invaded a country so just remember that when there's like in in that time period you know, this, this, you know, historical meaning behind music is always important. If you're playing a German piece behind that time period and there's anger, just remember that. They woke up and invaded a country. I think I was working on a quintet piece and it was, um, and our, our coach was like, hey, this is a Nazi march. Give, give it some more um, umph. And I was like, okay, okay. I know what you meant by that, but I don't know if I can channel that. I don't know if I can channel a, how a Nazi would feel marching, you know, behind Hitler. All right. But anyway, um, this chapter, it was, it was interesting to see how they, how, you know, Wagner was used and his music was used throughout whenever the film industry was becoming a bigger thing. And so I will now pass it over to uh, Mr. Michael Shannon Brown. Hello class, how are you? <laughs> Amazing. This is Professor NPR for a second. Like that's what it sounded like. When Michael start, when Michael thinks he's putting on his professor voice, he gets he gets a lisp and it's like why? Yeah. Have you ever heard really good professors? I'm just messing with you. <laughs> Where's my cool jazz behind me? Anyway, um, the 15th chapter, which um is called The Wound. And it's talking about Wagnerism after 1945. So my first question is, what happened in 1945? The end of the war, child. There it is. I'm See, glad someone listened. <laughs> What'd you say? I was like, this reminds me of when we were in uh, music theory and I would know the answer to a question that I would get called on for and I would lean over to Anthony and be like, hey, what's the answer to that? <laughs> <laughs> Lauren, 19... Also the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The yeah. war was over. Yeah, yes. war was over. Yeah. Big bombs that killed thousands of Lasting people. Lasting effects as well. Um... Anyways, so in my chapter, we talk about the new Beirut. So obviously after 1945, the image of Wagner probably took an amazing hit. Very bad hit. I'd say so. It's, I, I would it's like, you know, these gas prices, they really going up. It's like, I hate these gas prices. I'm sorry. I don't know why that came to my mind. Yeah, he because my bank account is taking a hit every time I gotta fill up my tank. So he his um his image took a big hit, but there was a renaissance in the 1950s of Beirut, which was quite unexpected because of all the post-war what we were doing, how we were like trying to battle this image of Nazi and denazification and that whole process, which is completely flawed, by the way. And if you haven't read about denazification, please go read about it and please see the major flaw in it. Isn't and it kind of like how in the Civil War, they were like, say, you, say you're wrong, say you were wrong. All right, all right, now go play. <laughs> you know, like when you were, two people would get in trouble at recess and they were like, all right, you both have to apologize for each other thing, you can keep playing. I never apologized. Okay, the South. Oh, that is exactly the South. I know Anthony never did either. Huh? 
Did you apologize when you got in trouble? Why would I have to apologize? I didn't do that. So yeah. No, 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 no. You were not an angel of a child. I was. First of all, I never got in trouble like Bree said. I got in trouble three times. We can tell. We all know that. Uh-uh. But two of them were for talking too much. Anyways. We don't know that. Come back. Come back. Okay. Anyways, mm. thank you. Don't send unless I've called for you. I'm not telling you more. New Beirut was able to transform Wagner's image, and they were able to convince the world about the decisively breakup between the Nazi past. How they were able to convince people, I don't know. So now we're going to transition into the holy German art. If you've been following our book, there was a whole nother section, maybe even a chapter on holy German art so and what was interesting for this i'm going to read a little bit but for any german-speaking artist or writers who came to the fore in the post-war decades wagner was the god that failed i'm gonna repeat that again the god that failed so again we're holding people up really really high and i want to read a little bit so um, Heinrich Boyle's 1950 story, Lohengrin's Death, set in the aftermath of the war, tells of an orphan boy who suffers a fatal fall while trying to steal coal from a moving train. He is named Lohengrin because he was born in 1933, just when the first photographers of Hitler at the Beirut Wagner Festival started flooding all the illustrated weeklies. So... Again, holding this man up so high, and he still failed. I just don't like the phrase, the God that failed. I'm, I'm still upset about this. But yeah. I want to ask y'all, how do you think Wagner was able to survive through Nazification and possibly denazification era and after? Um, because they didn't take it seriously. I mean, that's really the only way I, I can put that. Like, if, that, if all that still was able to move on uh, to this side, at, you know, after the fact, that means nothing was done. And it's exactly, I can say the same thing for the Civil War, because people can still fly Confederate flags outside, even though that represented a, a like a divide within our nation. Because that's exactly why I brought up the first time. You really didn't do anything. Um, and on that, I think the same thing. Like, it's because nobody was held truly accountable no um and with that so when you don't hold anybody accountable everything that kind of falls to the crack and like when you put it on a grand scheme of things when you say nazi you mean really adolf hitler and his like group of henchmen those people nothing really happens to the uh regular citizens who follow them Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. also so those people fall through the cracks music falls through the cracks, all of the little things. If you're not the head of it, and if you're not on the first or second level under them, then you kind of get kind of just like, don't do it again. Yep. So and that's how it kind of went on. In the whole process, we I had a class recently, we talked about denazification. And the whole process was flawed because some people were pushed through. Like a lot of musicians, so sorry, was pushed through 
the process to get back to reforming, to get back to making music and stuff, because that was apparently a part of the whole rebuilding of Germany yes. and all that sort of stuff. So when you do that, when you push through anybody or push through any thing and you like let's say you set this precedence you don't follow the precedence the precedence is just stupid it is automatically idiotic and it should never have been said in the first place so now i will transition to my lovely co-host anthony morris hey and i have the last little couple pages the post route and the post route really kind of just sums up um alex Ross's kind of mindset of why um, this book um, even came to fruition. Um, I highlighted some things and I would just want to read it for you. Um, so first, Bog, uh, why am I talking about Wagner? Ross actually, uh, at the age of 10, he actually borrowed uh, Lohengrin from the public library. But on his first listening, he actually didn't like it. He said the lack of clear um, demarcations and the music, the sensation of drift and um, produced in the 10 year old self, not otherworldly blitz described by Baudelaire, but kind of auditory seasickness. I returned those records the next day. So on his first listening at the age of 10, he was not amused. He was not amused. And I would have to say, I don't know about y'all, but at 10 years old, if I were to listen to the whole thing of Lundgren, I probably would have returned it back the day of. Like, uh-uh, we taking this back right now. I would have bought it. I would have. I would have never bought it. I would have looked at it. I honestly would not even looked at it. First of all, I mean, I think our generation was like the last generation that went to public libraries. Yes. I went maybe once or twice because I was not the big reader of the family. So I didn't even know they had they had records. <laughs> I honestly thought the library was full of just books and books alone. Did not know they had movies. And I knew they had DVDs. I didn't know they had like records and like CDs. Yeah. Honestly, I forgot that libraries existed. Don't say that. Books at home. My great grandmother gave me books like all the time. Right, I was like, right. I don't like reading books. I only went to library for projects. For projects, uh-uh. I hate projects. Um, but he did come back to Wagner in his uh, collegiate years. Um, and he says, at the end of my college years, my life veered in somewhat of a chaotic, self-destructive direction. It was at this point naturally that I began to fall in love with Wagner. So I have a question for y'all is, do you think that your, the way your life is set or what you're going through at this point of your life is that what makes you kind of fall in love with artists like Wagner, who has this more intriguing type of personality, even though it's full of controversy? Intriguing personality surrounded by controversy. That's like almost every artist that's mm -hmm. out currently. Um, I don't know. I don't... I don't I've never been like a person who's like, oh, she's weird. I like her. Like, I, 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 that's never been the the thing I'd go towards. Now, I have, you know, I have my little emo phase. We all had to dip our toe into that sector, or maybe not. Okay, well, anyway, the cool kids. <laughs> the, cool kids the, the cool kids did, okay? And so, so the cool kids out here rapping Nicki Minaj going down the hallways in seventh grade. You want the attention, right? Okay, goodbye. 
shut it down <laughs> shut it down, shut it down. <laughs> um, but anyway like, i've never like i know people were so like the whole lady gaga meat yeah, dress thing, gaga, that was yeah. crazy like i think she's the biggest one we could say and i don't really know if she's had a lot of like con like specifically controversy but miley cyrus the whole thing that happened when she flipped her image going from hannah montana disney channel to like twerking cursing everything else um you know yeah, some people are drawn to that. I, 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 I never. Those people have just been like I watch from afar, you know. Mm-hmm. I just listen to music. I really don't care about their personality. Like I just listen to the music they produce. If I like their music, I like their music. I don't search after somebody like, oh, I like your story. I'm gonna like your music. No, that really just doesn't come into my mind at all. Wow. Well, Michael's also the person who doesn't like look up what the actors' names are. So. I don't. See, <laughs> yeah, that's the whole point of watching. Like when I watch Bridgerton, I research every single yes. character. Absolutely not. I want to watch Bridgerton. <laughs> I watched this movie last night from like the '60s, and I was like, "Oh my god, that was Spock from Star the New Star Trek, and that was Sheldon from The Big Bang Theory, and that was this guy from AHS uh, Hotel Season." So I'm 1960s? like, yeah, well, like the movie was set in the 1960s. Oh, I was about to be like, it came, it came out like recently, but the movie was set in the 1960s. And oh, I was like, oh, that's okay. the guy here, here, here. I don't know actors' names. Those are confused me. Okay. Well, so the rest of the um, post, it kind of explains Ross's obsession with Wagner. Um, he tells the story of how Wagner was with him with relationships of, you know, hearing, taking them to uh, different operas and then the person who he came with ain't there no more, like a whole, real whole drama, give it real good tea, you know? Then um, he says, for me, uh, Wagner was more often brought uh, revelations to my uh, stupidity, my self-pity and my absurdities. And in other words, my humanity. So he kind of just said Wagner was really kind of in and out of his personal life. Um, and then one thing that, uh, two, the two last things is this quote. To blame Wagner for the horrors committed in his wake is an inadequate response to historical complexity. It lets the rest of civil, civilization off the hook. At the same time, to exonerate him is to ignore his insidious ramifications which this is something I completely agree with. And I have been waiting this entire book for Alex to say this. Yes, I didn't know going through that. I was like, I don't know. (laughs) I waited, uh, this is on page 658. So 600 and, no, it's on 659. I waited (laughs) 659 pages for this two sentences. Is that to fully blame Wagner for everything is not you you can't do that because he is one man but to uh completely let him off the hook is also yeah we can't do that either so it's very this complexity and i love how he said it lets the rest of civilization off the hook because Mm -hmm. you gotta remember the little people Uh who followed these big things Mm -hmm. what happened to them because I'm pretty sure some of the, the, the people who followed Nazism uh, in oh, the 30s course. and 40s, they're the grandparents or great-grandparents of people now. 
but they're living their lives. And that story you'll never hear because they are now ashamed of it. Mm. With that story. Or or ashamed or, you know, just hiding. Um, and the last thing, um, it says, when we look at Wagner, we are gazing into a magnifying mirror of the soul of human species. And I took that, and I want to hear what y'all took about that, of Wagner was very complex. He showed the goods, the bads, the uglies, and what is behind the door. Because everybody has something behind the door. You know, whether you said this or you've done this, everybody have those skeletons in the closet. And he just happened to be the person who we see the skeletons behind every closet that he had in his house. So what y'all think about that? I agree that Wagner is a very good uh, visual and symbol of humanity in the sense of like someone who can create, you want to say, you know, this amazing music that can speak to different people, but also have these, like you said, skeletons in their closet, these morals that are just immoral, um, beliefs that are just evil and just wrong. Um, now, is everyone to that extent? No, no. Um, I don't think that we can say Wagner himself is humanity uh, or, you know, he is every human because no, um, there, there were people who were in Nazi Germany who was like, yeah, this probably isn't right. Probably shouldn't be doing this stuff, you know? And I think I'm very glad that we finally got this, you know, this from Alex Ross saying, yeah, uh, now, and I agree with this. It's like, yeah, a person who has these certain beliefs and morals rises to a point because of their following. So we can't just talk about the person. We also have to talk about the people, but we can't let the person just, you know, walk off all willy nilly. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's complex. He is a complex person. If I've learned anything from that is that Wagner is a complex man. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Um, can you, can you just summarize the question again before I have, I think I have what I want to say, but I want to make sure. Well, the quote says, when we look at Wagner, we are gazing into a magnifying mirror of the soul of the human species. Okay, great. So yeah, that's what I, I, I thought you said that. Um, I, can, I can see where he's coming from because, you know, everybody has skeletons in their closet, whether how big, how small whether how hideous, how not hideous. Like some people's skeletons might be cheating on one test in their life because they're that kind of person. One people's skeletons might be Wagner skeletons. You know what I mean? So I can see where he's coming from and the connection he's drawing because he's such an idealized figure. It's like, what if you were put up there and you had that many skeletons? How would you react? and how would you view yourself if you were put up to a magnifying glass and exposed for all of life you know what I mean and I'm like from that point I can get it but also not everybody has that many skeletons or skeletons of that caliber okay, okay. Um, and to finish the whole book off uh, it wouldn't be Alex Ross's book without somehow referencing silence as we know, his uh, best-selling book was called The Rest of the Noise. And the last sentence says, the vision fades, the curtain falls, and we shuffle back in silence 
to the world as it is. So meaning once that, that ending cue is gone, the curtain is let down, the people who came to uh, experience something goes back to the world and might be changed, might not be, but they go back to the world that they were existing in before the performance. We have come to, to the end of Alex Ross's Wagnerism. Yeah, let's just, just for the people, just to flashback to the first episode. <laughs> like, I just can't even believe right. that, we, that we took this on and I'm proud of us, okay? <laughs> we should be proud of ourselves um, for taking on a monster of a book. And it was such a new, you know, a new book really where, you know, people haven't had a chance to write any things about it. Or, you know, if we took a book that's been you know, out for a hundred years, we could find many sources online, you know, of it, but this is brand new. And um, what, I mean, okay, so now we get to go back and think about how, what we thought from the beginning, if we were going to think we're going to be completely different. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much the same. I, I think if anything, I have really understood how dangerous hero worship is and putting someone on a, a, that high of a pedestal is especially when yeah like we say these people have these skeletons in their closet so should we really be putting these people up who you know oh the artistry but okay but then they were racist or they were you know uh, sexist or um homophobic like well no no the answer is no the answer is no i'm, I'm the exact same um like I said, it took until 659 to reveal the response that I wanted this whole book to tell me. Yes. Yes. Homie was a complex man. It goes in and out. And I think that was the biggest thing that I learned from the book is that he is a very complex person. Was Wagner a Gemini? Let me look this up. He was born May 13th, May 12th. Mark something, I don't know, hold on. It's right here in the back of the book. Y'all wanna read 600, he was born May 22nd, 1813. May 22nd, Zodiac. He's a Gemini, oh my God, Wagner's a Gemini. Oh what? Wagner is actually a Gemini. This, no, this is crazy, okay? Like literally the whole thing with Gemini's is like the whole, you know, the two-faced complex and be all these things. And the fact that this man actually was a Gemini blows my mind. Goodbye. Good night, everyone. I'm so done. And on that, I can we say much more? Can we I, I think honestly, we could have wrapped this entire book club series up with a song. If y'all haven't read the book, please read the book. It is definitely a, a good old Laffy Taffy, one of them very strong Laffy Taffies to get through, but it will it'll give you some more knowledge. It like Laffy Taffy. Laffy Taffy. Huh? Laffy Taffy from the 70s that you found in your great great grandmother's yeah. brief. Yeah, you gotta actually, I hope you got strong teeth. 
So you need metal. Yes. But it's been a great journey and I'm glad um, we got to be on the journey together and reading this book. I'm glad that um, all of you have been listening to the podcast. You have been tuning in and joining the journey with us. Um, we definitely are not done with our no. podcast. We have a lot more um, coming at you. So please, please, please stay tuned. Uh, we love you. We would love to keep hearing from you. So all the links are down below. Please reach out to us and tell us what you want to see more on the podcast. So it was great seeing everybody. Bye.